You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Alrighty, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, I get to start us off this week, uh, which is super exciting. So the whole premise of this show is that we don't tell each other what topics we're, we're going to be bringing to the table before we record. It's a whole premise. Absolutely. And, um, it's still the premise of the show, but Kirk let slip that his topic this week is apparently exceedingly gross. That's mm-hmm. all I know. I'm, it's 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 pretty cringy. Yep. Beautiful. So I decided to be nice and choose what I consider something kind of beautiful as a topic. Oh, Aww. good. That will be a nice foil to what I'm bringing. Exactly. Table, which is awful. <laughs> so that being should said. should listen in opposite order to have like yours as a palate cleanser or something. Maybe. <laughs> I thought about that. That's I wasn't just not sure how we roll one, on this uh, show. Which, no, we're starting. no, we're going to end on, we're gonna we're gonna end end on, on a, a, a note to be sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that being said, of course, me being me, we are headed right into the great blue sea. Um, any of the oceans, any of the seas that you want to be in, that's fine. Um, this particularly beautiful creature, it can be found just about anywhere in the salty oceans or seas, uh, including like polar Mm -hmm. regions. They've been spotted underneath the sea ice all the way up Mm, to, uh, they've been spotted in tropical seas as well, which is pretty, um, yeah, quite amazing. That is a very wide range. Wide range. Especially for the type of creature that this is. Okay. Um, so in these open these open blue waters, um, depending on the species, because it's a group of species, uh, lives a free swimming sea slug. It's a <laughs> group. Okay. <laughs> it's a group of. Uh, it's a clade of, or subclade of uh, sea slugs that range from anywhere from about 2,000 feet deep or 600 meters all the way to the surface of the ocean. It's where they kind of hang out. Um, Again, quite a range, yeah. Yeah, again. um, Well, there's multiple, like, species within this group, too. Um, Uh, I got, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they all have the different sort of spot they're going to be. That makes what exactly. So... These particular sea slugs are gorgeous, uh, mostly in my opinion, but they I, they have been like said to be, they look really pretty. Um, You're not the only one who thinks this? <laughs> I'm not the only one who thinks this. Uh, they have a transparent and gelatinous body, uh, so you can see yeah. their organs, mm. uh, which are oh. generally like an orange or pink kind of color, um, with two fins off to either side. I say fins, uh, they're Parapoda, podia, parapodia, okay. um, which act like flapping wings in the water. Um, their head cool, is rounded yeah, yeah. 
with two little protrusions that are kind of similar to antenna, but much shorter. Uh, so think like you think of a slug. That's generally what it looks like. And then it has like these transparent wings. A slug, but like, like a, a lot sl- more appealing. Yeah. Or like a slug from another planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this particular cool. creature is actually called the sea angel. Sea angel. Oh my. And it is very reminiscent of like angels that you would put on top of a Christmas tree. Huh. Um, I'm looking at a photo right now. And yeah. It's, oh, wow. Very different from the sea slugs that I'm familiar with. Right? Yeah. Uh, this is it, I wouldn't have guessed a looking. slug necessarily. Yeah. It, it, to sort of try to paint some of the picture, uh, it almost looks a little bit like a, an aquatic uh, hummingbird. Yeah, Ooh, that's a good one. Which, yeah. which is like like with, almost like these the wings are sort of like fast moving kind with of cat I don't think ears. they move fast, but yeah, yeah, it's we like a little like owly kind of looking. There, yeah, I I'm at a bit of a loss <laughs> for describing this properly because it just is they're yeah. kind of translucent. Mm-hmm. And you can pretty much see mostly looking. through it. Yeah, and yeah. like those uh those parapodia are actually really gentle and it is how they get around. Um, they're not fast by any means. No, I would not <laughs> assume so. They are faster than their prey, which we'll talk about. Okay. Okay. Um, they are rather small, uh, as you could maybe imagine. Uh, mm-hmm. The largest of the species in this group of the sea angels is five centimeters in length. Oh, Oh, oh my. So real tiny. Um, And generally, they actually have a lifespan of about two years, which is pretty cool. Okay. That's not too bad for something so small. Exactly. Um, uh, They actually really remind me, see if you all remember this. um, They remind me of a similar animal I talked about, the sea butterfly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Mm -hmm. It It was a long while ago. Which is really funny because majority of the sea angels actually predate predate on the sea butterfly. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, oh my! And right. the sea butterfly is actually one of its closest living relatives. Oh, just keeping it well, all in the family. Seem very nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. Gen- so they're it's really like, beautiful. It's like having a gorilla snake or something. That's horrible. Pretty much, yeah. So what they'll do when they catch and detect an, a sea butterfly, which are also rather small. Um, and again, I, they aren't fast, but they are faster than sea butterflies um, while mm-hmm. they swim. Uh, I think one source said that they are 0.22 miles per hour is their speed in oh. water. Oh, my. <laughs> okay. 0.22. Um, so what happens is when they detect them with their like antenna of sorts, um, from the head, they actually extend tentacles from their head, kind of like fingers of sorts to grab a hold of the sea butterfly. They extend from their head, use some, uh, hook appendages, which is actually modified radula called buccal cones. And they're able okay, to yeah. uh-huh. use those 
to pull the sea butterfly out of their shell and into their mouth and stomach. Oh, yeah. And it's I'm I'm wild. again looking at a photo of that right now. Uh-huh. Uh, it's very much it looks like so different. Stranger Things, uh, Demogorgon, like sort of tentacle mouth thing opening up uh-huh. and this pretty little thing just like bah! exactly <laughs> that's, that's kind of terrifying what was really cool to find out for this particular for this uh well it can take them anywhere from two minutes to take the entire sea butterfly out to 45 minutes so it, oh. it takes a, a big variety varied Ooh, time which that's... is wild what a way to go. Right? Oh, you're uh-huh. just being slowly sucked into the mouth of your cousin. Oof. Gross. That's, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. What a quote. I mean, I did, I, did say, I did say that this was a nice one. <laughs> kind of oh, nice. Oh, let's just move on. I don't really even... pretty. Okay. Uh, but that's what I have for you... <laughs> Both this week. <laughs> oh my god, that's one of the worst things I've ever heard said on the show. Okay. Um. Uh, yeah. So that's what I have for you both this week. Just something nice. Oh, that short was it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's all, okay. uh, on that note. That's yeah. pretty much it. We're gonna end on that note. That's yeah. probably for the best. Probably for the best. Um, my sources. Wow. <laughs> Um, my sources this week were Wikipedia, Monterey Bay Aquarium, Ocean Conservancy, and the Smithsonian had a great article about, um, sea angels, which was awesome. Awesome. Um, Check out our yeah. Instagram. Uh, there, Rachel will be putting pictures gorgeous. of those up. Oh yeah. You have to see they're them. They're up there already. If you're hearing this, they're up there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and when we return, it'll be Victoria. Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strangebynature. See you soon. Hey, we're back. Uh, my topic is, it's quite a, it's quite a journey. Uh, okay. And so I'm going to start in 1993 when the well-known neurologist and author Oliver Sacks got a call oh, from yeah. an acquaintance uh, who was okay. another neurologist named John Steele. And John uh, wanted to get Oliver's opinion on his patients. John had been living and working for the last dozen years or so on the Pacific island of Guam because the native Chamorro people were uniquely affected by a neurodegenerative disease there called uh, liticobotic. That's what that was the Chamorro name for the disease was. Okay. Okay. Lytico Bodig. And it had two major ways it could appear. So Lytico uh, was similar to ALS, like Lou Gehrig's disease, where Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Yeah, yeah. Basically, you become progressively paralyzed, but your brain remains completely fine until the end. Awful way to go. Hor- horrifying. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and Bodig, which basically resembled Parkinson's disease, where patients would, be- like, their movements would become stuck. Um, right. And often the Bodig patients also would often um, suffer from a dementia resembling Alzheimer's disease. All oh. not. All huh. pretty um, awful Horrifying. ways to yeah. go. And right. interestingly, the brains of Lydico Bodig patients, when looked at under a microscope, had damage that was pretty similar to the damage seen in Alzheimer's brains. Okay. So John Steele had been mm. treating these patients for a long time, but what exactly was going on with them was a big mystery and had been for a while. There's written evidence of this disease going back to early 20th century, but it first really came to the notice of Western science after World War II. And at the height of the epidemic of this disease on Guam between about 1945 and 1956, it was the leading cause of death in adults there. Whoa. Oh, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So this is something that's, that's pretty widespread then. Yeah. Yes. So it has been the focus of a lot of interest because the diseases it resembles are some of the most feared and intractable diseases um, in in Western societies as well. And the thought was perhaps understanding Lytico Bodig might help us understand what causes ALS, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's, which we do not know. Mm -hmm. Um, Wow. So at first, there was a focus on genetics, but while the disease did seem to strike many members of the same family, it did not follow any known inheritance pattern. Hmm. Okay. Also, uh, no one born after about 1960 seemed to be getting the disease. Whoa. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So the next thought was maybe it might be related to an infectious disease. Now, uh, right. There were some signs, though, that pointed away from an infectious cause. For one thing, uh, the disease seemed to affect only Chamorro people. And even Chamorro people who had moved to the mainland United States could then be struck down 20, 10, 20, 30 years after they had emigrated. Okay. So it's not an environmental cause either. Well, some maybe. things can lay dormant for a long yeah, time. Yeah, some though. things can lay dormant for a long time. So can so can some viruses, but non-Chamorro people on Guam were not affected unless they had adopted Chamorro culture. So like just huh. being on okay. Guam wasn't enough to yeah, yeah. get you the disease. But in either case, there seemed to be some kind of delayed onset. So like people like would marry into a Chamorro family and then, you know, 25 years later come down with the disease sometimes so uh some environmental cause did seem most likely and one area of focus was the chamorro diet since you're going to be looking at something that that was the first thing i was thinking of right Mm -hmm. so one of their staples was a flower made from the seeds of plants called cycads and Cycads are a very ancient kind of plant. They resemble palm trees. They have very stiff kind of um, pointy fronds, but Mm -hmm. they're not actually related to palms. Uh, They date back to before flowering plants existed. (laughs) Uh, They're gymnosperms. Um, So you may have actually seen some grown as ornamental plants. They're called sago palms often. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're pretty, I, I've seen them around, especially for like indoor plant type stores and things like that. Yes, definitely. They're very, very cool. They are very cool. Um, my grandparents, uh, when I used to visit them in Austin, Texas, growing up, had a sago palm in their backyard in a pot. But uh, Guam, actually, they make up a pretty unusually large percent of the native tree species. They, I don't know if you would say they dominate the the flora there, but there are a lot of cycads. A lot. Yeah. Okay. And... Uh, during World War II, Guam was occupied by the Japanese, uh, and under those difficult circumstances, cycad flour became an even larger part of the diet because farming was more difficult and various other related reasons, I'm sure you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is cycads are quite toxic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not, the, not great. No. Uh, They have a a couple different toxins, but if the seeds are extensively processed, you know, many different changes of water and so forth, they can be made safe to eat. Um, But, you know, one of the toxins has acute effects mostly on the liver, but one of the other toxins is an amino acid called BMAA, which stands for something I'm not going (laughs) to read to you. Did seem it did seem to have some effects on the nervous system, and some animal experiments were done in the 1960s, but none of them resulted in the animals getting anything like lidocopodig disease. So the cycad theory was pretty much dropped for a while. Then, then in the 1980s, uh, there was another experimenter, and he fed extra large doses of BMAA to monkeys, and he was actually able to reproduce some kind of similar neurological symptoms. Huh. Over a short time frame. And this caused a lot of excitement in the various researchers, but it turned out that the doses that the monkeys were being fed uh, corresponded with consuming just like unrealistically enormous amounts of cycad flour. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. And when samples of the flour were tested, they actually contained relatively low amounts of this BMAA toxin. Okay. Uh, and you know, Oliver Sacks's book, uh, excellent book from 1996 called Island of the Colorblind, where I'm getting most of this information from, he goes over all these hypotheses and more besides that I don't have time to mention here. And he basically concludes that Chimuros likely have some underlying genetic susceptibility. Um, they went through a pretty severe genetic bottleneck, unfortunately, due to basically a genocide in the late, uh, 17th century, I think it was, mm. Um, and that probably one or the other of the cycad toxins may be somehow to blame for this disease. But at the end of the book, the mystery, mystery you know, essentially remains unsolved. Wow. But okay. our story is not wow. over. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I like Oliver, having it yes. solved. <laughs> well, we'll see. Okay. <laughs> Oliver did not forget about Lydico Bode disease after leaving Guam and writing his book. He kept thinking about it, and he actually wound up collaborating with an ethnobotanist named Paul Allen Cox. Um, So ethnobotanists, they study basically how different societies use plants, Mm -hmm. right? Right, right. And they together came up with an intriguing hypothesis in 2002, which they published uh, in a scientific journal. And the key to this hypothesis came from a different part of the Chimuro diet. Flying foxes. Mm-hmm. Flying foxes 
Yeah, they are giant fruit bats. And oh, yeah. tra- they huge. resemble a fox, in facially at least. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and traditionally, they were a very prized delicacy that were served on special occasions, boiled whole right. in coconut milk. Oh, jeez. Wow. <laughs> yeah. See, I've seen a picture of this dish, and it is bad in some coconut milk. Okay. Oh, <laughs> you know, okay. tastes very. Yeah. Hey, some people like yeah. pineapple. What That's right. Say? Exactly. Some people like pineapple. People eat weird, people eat weird stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, in the 20th century, there was an increasing availability of guns on Guam, and there was also a shift to a more capitalistic culture. Um, along with American colonization and so forth. And this led to a huge Mm -hmm. increase in the hunting and eating of flying foxes from what the levels had previously been. And uh, actually, you know, this this big increase in hunting, along with the invasive brown tree snake, which I talked about in another episode, Mm -hmm. eventually led the population of flying foxes on Guam to crash in the mid-20th century. But... For the few decades before this, Chamorros ate more flying foxes more frequently than ever before. Mm-hmm. And what Oliver and uh, Paul Allen Cox, the ethnobotanist, figured out was that flying foxes eat cycad seeds. And Oh, the seeds? Yeah, BMAA is a fat-soluble compound, so it can bioaccumulate in the bat's flesh. Uh-huh. Wow. And yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> so yeah, like a highly concentrated dose mm-hmm. there. So, when people, yeah, exactly, when people were eating the bats, they were getting basically mega doses of BMAA, maybe wow. consistent with what that experimenter was doing, more than could ever be consumed by eating cycad flour. Yep. So, and then I did not expect the story to go in all these directions, yeah. And if they eat multiple of the flying foxes and everything, that bioaccumulates in us as well as humans. Sure. So. Mm-hmm. Well, so Ooh. mystery solved. Maybe. Maybe, <laughs> okay. yeah. Uh, the source of the BMAA in cycads is actually symbiotic cyanobacteria that live in the roots. What? Yes. Okay, cool. <laughs> Um, and cyanobacteria of all kinds actually make BMAA, and they live in all kinds of places on Earth. For example, they're responsible for the toxic algae blooms that may come to a lake near you this summer. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, and yeah. so lots of people are exposed to BMAA. <laughs> um, right. So for a while... I try not to eat the algae in the pond, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Not my Paul favorite and- snack. <laughs> no little different than your little seaweed uh roasted seaweed snacks right no or the Uh, spirulina that i talked about yeah or the spirulina Mm -hmm. well paul and cox has done a lot of subsequent research to try to see if bmaa exposure can be linked to alzheimer's disease just regular old alzheimer's disease wow um there was uh you know a couple pathology type experience or experiments where some evidence of BMAA was found in the brains of Alzheimer's patients who had died. But, you know, later studies haven't had as much success reproducing the result. And so, you know, basically there is no better explanation now for lytocobotic disease on Guam, but 
um, it's it's an ongoing area of study and significant debate in the Alzheimer's yeah. and neurodegenerative disease research community. Wow. Wow. Well, Very I, oh, amazing. Yeah. I love science. <laughs> I just, what I, I love all the amazing interconnecting pieces in this story. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was, yeah. It was right? wild. Go from one place to another. It's like, okay, sure. That whoa but that's sometimes where the science uh road takes you yeah mm-hmm. where the evidence and, leads you know oliver Sacks was an amazing writer he told the story you know far better than i ever could at least the first part of it so i definitely encourage you to go check out that book and any of his other books he sadly died in 2015 but they're still Aww. great reads yeah yeah all right we're gonna take a little break and then uh brace yourselves for whatever kirk has in store for <laughs> us today it's it's a doozy. Okay, I want you to imagine that you are traveling to Chad or South Sudan, maybe Mali or Ethiopia, generally that region of Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, water is a hot commodity in much mm-hmm. of these countries, being as they are either partially in or at least closely adjacent to the Sahara Desert. Yes. Uh, The area that you are visiting, though, uh, luckily does have access to water. And that's a good thing because you are really hot and a local villager offers you a glass of water and you take a nice, cool drink. Now, many of our listeners have likely traveled to places other than their homes and know that drinking the water from places that don't have good water hygiene or purification can bring challenges to your intestines. Right. I think I might Uh, know where you're going with this one. Okay. (laughs) Excellent. Usually those challenges are um, of the diarrheal variety, mm-hmm. but sometimes things can get worse. Oh, good. Much, much <sighs> worse. You see, in remote parts of uh, these countries, if you take water from a pond to drink, you may be ingesting copepods. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Uh, so if, if you look through a microscope um, at microscopic pond critters, like when you were in like high school or middle school or something like that, you likely looked at copepods. Very, they're very common around the world. They're really mm-hmm. easy thing to see through microscopes or even with a, a magnifying glass, you can see some of the larger ones. So this little, little critters swimming around in the water. Little itty bitty crustaceans. Mm-hmm, yeah. They're fun to watch. And so these, oh, they're, they're, they're very cool. They're very cool. Um, and the copepods that you just ingested, though, are not what you need to worry about. They're pretty much quickly going to die in the environment of your, you know, acid-filled stomach, right? So, right. Whew, we're all we're all good, right? Everything's no, okay. No, because uh, apparently not. No, no, it's not. You see, the real problem here is that the copepods are themselves infected with a parasite. There it is. They're carrying the larva from the guinea worm. Yes, I knew you were going to go there. Oh, no. Oh, Oh, the guinea worm. Is this because of um, Jimmy Carter? (laughs) Is that why you chose this topic? No, 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 no. Uh, This is is just, this is something I've been meaning to talk about for a really long time. Um, And uh, yeah, not not anything to do with with Jimmy. Although he he is someone who's been championing, trying to... uh, get rid of this issue of the guinea worm. So we're going to get to like, what, what is a guinea worm and what's the big deal? Well, let me just run through the life cycle of the guinea worm for you. Uh, Are we sitting comfortably? No, we haven't had a good parasite in a while. Yeah. Mm. So I guess. Well, this is a, this is a doozy. 
So the guinea worm larvae start out in stagnant pools of water and they infect copepods. They are, of course, very small to be able to do this because copepods themselves are very microscopic and small. So the copepods Mm -hmm. are eventually consumed by humans uh, where they die in your stomach. And when the copepods die, the larvae are released. Now, they don't die in your stomach acid. They actually penetrate the walls of your stomach and, and intestines. And they go on a journey inside your body. Uh, They will eventually uh, infect you and set up shop in the connective tissues of your abdomen and uh, begin to, you know, feed and and live there. Mm -hmm. So we need those connective tissues. I like my connective tissues where they are. Well, and you're good news. You're going to keep them because to be clear, you have no idea this is happening. You feel (sighs) completely fine. Uh, They are very, very tiny. You don't feel a thing. But once they've set up shop, the guinea worms do what comes naturally. They start to mate inside your body. Uh-huh. So now you got that going on, which is just lovely. Uh, the males yeah. die off having done their job. Mm-hmm. But the tiny little female worms now begin the next phase of their life. It is time to grow. And boy, howdy, do they ever. Okay. Over the course of a year, with no outward appearance that anything is happening inside of you, Victoria knows where I'm going with this, yeah. um, oh, no. they, they start to grow and grow and grow, and they can eventually reach a length of three feet long. No. That's one meter. Are a, about one meter, and they are um, the width of like a piece of cooked spaghetti. And oh, I, no. I do have to pause. Yeah. I do have to pause here and point out that of all the kinds of pasta in the world, I absolutely cannot stand spaghetti. It's just the <laughs> really? worst. Um, I find it. I first of all, I find it hard to eat because I have an overbite, so I really it's very difficult for me to eat mm. spaghetti. But it's just always reminded me of like a bowl of worms okay. since I was a little kid. <laughs> you know, and now that uh, you have. You know, this this image of this three foot long spaghetti guinea worm inside your abdomen, it makes me like spaghetti even less. I so, like spaghetti. Moving on. Or... Anyway, it's a little, little yeah, inside. Well, you know, you might not in a little bit. Uh... So we're going to move on. Um, uh, we're very unfortunately not done. The life cycle must continue uh, uh, for these worms. Uh, and unfortunately for the female, she's inside your body, which is generally not uh, a place she can infect copepods, like, right? M- right. Is there more than one in your body at a time or is there just one? You know, I, the cases I was seeing, what I was talking about, like one. Um, so I don't, I, but I, I would imagine you, you could have more you than one. You could have more than one. I think, yeah. I think often it's one, but you can have more than one. Okay. Yeah. So um, this takes. Time. So again, this is a more than a year after you drank that water, and she's going to start moving through your body. And generally, yeah. they head for the lower legs. So like your legs, your ankles, your feet. Uh, but they can also go to other parts of the body and just sort of get mixed up. But generally, they're 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 going down uh, to your uh, your feet. And this is when you finally notice something strange is going on because uh-huh. you could actually see this like worm under your skin no uh, first yes first you get a fever uh, then you're going to notice swelling and soreness in the spot where the worm is and eventually a painful burning blister forms on the skin and this horrible burning oh. sensation lasts for approximately 24 to 48 hours oh. so if you think about this um what do you do 
if you have a hot burning blister on your feet or legs, you are naturally, you want to cool it off, right? So people with these blisters are naturally drawn to cool Water. water to soothe their pain. And when exposed to water, the worm will release a milky white liquid into the water, which is millions and millions of guinea worm larvae just shooting out into the water from your body. And they are now food for the copepods that live in that pond who will eat them and complete the life cycle. Mm -hmm. Now, you may be tempted to think that because the life cycle is complete, my story is complete, but oh no. You still got a a worm. You still have a worm in you. Yeah. You do. So very unfortunately, uh, the story goes on uh, Uh because you're still, yeah, I said a three foot worm in your leg and it must come out. If you pull on it too hard, you will break it and you will kill it. And you now have a three foot long dead rotting worm in your body and you're going to get an infection. So you can't you can't do that. (sighs) Now, you do have to pull it out, but very carefully and unfortunately, very slowly uh reports are that it is extremely painful Uh to remove the worms and you can only remove a few centimeters each day each day yeah yeah so if you're extremely lucky maybe you have a small worm um you might be able to get it out in a couple days with a lot of pain Um, but for most people it takes weeks yeah, if it's a three foot, and then you're walking the around out. with they a like worm kind of sticking out. Stick. Uh-huh. Usually they wrap it around yeah, a stick. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You get a stick and kind of wrap it around there, and each day to sort of wrap it, you know, wrap another inch around. The next day, wrap another inch around, and kind of pull, painfully pull it out an inch, wrap it around the stick. And oh, so you have this no. stick to sort of like dangling on the side of your leg or your foot as you are spending time and while you're doing this you're in a lot of pain you're unable to go to school you're unable to go to work uh-huh. um you're not being able to provide for your family uh, uh-huh. it is a a very serious uh very problem it can be debilitating uh, it can actually cause like scar tissues in your joints and make yeah. your joints not function anymore uh it is very horrible um, I will point out, you know, Victoria mentioned the thing about wrapping it around a stick. There are photographs of this um, online. Right. If you care to look, maybe don't look if you're having spaghetti tonight. Um, uh, yeah. But, you I, know, I love so, this for our Instagram. Yeah. So meanwhile, yeah. as you're spending weeks winding up the worm, you have this hole in the side of your body and secondary infections are very common. Like I said, joint damage is very common. Uh, guinea worm disease, which is what this infection is called, is quite simply horrifying painful and debilitating Uh, it tends to occur in places without access to clean water uh, and these same places often don't have access to good medical care which of course complicates things Mm -hmm. and to be clear there is no drug to treat the infection and there is no vaccine to prevent it so the best thing to do is just not to get it Uh, the only way to stop the spread is one to keep people out of the water uh, if they do have it, so they don't spread it to other people. Because if that worm just dies, then you know it's it's not going to continue the life cycle on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also, you can um, treat water supplies and try to kill off copepods and things living in the water, and I that's think actually even, quite effective. Even filtering the water with a fine enough filter, sure, will do. Sure, it. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, yeah. basically having clean water. Who would have guessed? Is like a super super important thing. And yeah. as you mentioned, Victoria, you know, there's something Jimmy Carter was working on. A lot of people are working on trying to actually eradicate this disease off the face of the earth. And they are having quite a lot of success. 
2021, which is the last year I could get statistics for, uh, there were only 15 cases reported in the whole world. And that's which down from like hundreds of thousands in the 90s, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge drop off. Wild. Now, that's the, awesome. The the trouble is, though, we've gotten so good at, at keeping it from getting humans sick. But if we really want to wrap, wipe it out, we need to not have it be circling at all. Dogs and cats can also get guinea worm. I think like uh, baboons in, or something I read. Pro- probably some other animals, too. Yeah. Oh, in yeah. 2021, there was 790 reported cases in dogs in Chad alone. Oh, wow. uh, and that was just the reported cases. How many dogs had it where like no one reported it? Right. right. So. Uh, we need to control it, not because, you know, those dogs get in the water, then we're going to get it. So uh, it, they do need to try to really eliminate it, but they do feel like they are, you know, getting closer and closer with uh, some hard work and a little bit of luck. Uh, we may actually be close to making guinea worms a wild and horrifying thing from the past that humans of the future will never need to worry about again, which is pretty amazing. So raise a glass of clean water <laughs> uh, to the hardworking people working every day to bring that uh, that clean water to our collective tables. Uh, they are doing amazing, amazing work. Mm-hmm. I really only used one source this week for my story since it was so good. It was the good old Centers for Disease Control. Uh, yeah. They have a really nice write-up on guinea worm disease on their website, but there's a lot of information out there. Truly one of the stranger more horrifying things out there in, in yeah. nature it's been a while since we did a good parasite episode so i thought we yeah. need to throw that out it, there it's been a bit there's Awful. there's more on my list don't worry oh <laughs> there's always more on all of our lists yeah exactly Gross. well hey i want to mention something special here at the end of the show this is episode 108 this is the end of the season this is end of year the end two. of the year really end you know of year two. end of year Amazing. two uh, we've had a tremendous number of new listeners who have joined us in this last quarter of the year. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, yeah. You can check out our website, strangebynaturepodcast.com. You can find us on Patreon if you want to join the Society of Strange, uh, which is sort of our patron group that does some extra fun stuff. But uh, mostly, we're just really happy you're here. Thanks for spreading the word and writing those uh, five-star reviews on uh, like Apple Podcasts and pod chaser and all those places that people find it the more people that find it and join our weird strange family the the more we grow and the more fun we have so thank you thank you thanks for being here yeah, uh, as we wrap everyone. up next week's thank show oh. is yeah next week's show is going to be super <laughs> special uh, for those of you who have not been around uh-huh. quite as long uh the way we sort of kick off a new season is having on professional naturalist brett w Seberer, who's a, a common friend of the show and he uh, he takes over the show. So he will be yep. handing control over to him. We don't really ever know exactly what he has planned. He, he is quizzing us. He's, Maybe we're going to play a round of Eat, Ride, Jacket, which is a bizarre game he invented for our uh, start of season two yeah. or year two. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be a wild ride. He's, he's uh, full I of sure that's, that man. Yeah. He's wild card. Yeah. I, I sure hope next week is no one's first episode or they're going to be terribly confused. But <laughs> if you've been along for the ride, uh, you should enjoy it. Uh, but we'll let you guys all go. Thanks so much. I yeah, suppose if, if some of you have, you know, are behind, you can just download that, like go right into that episode. 109. Here it comes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody have a great evening and uh, we'll be seeing you real soon. Or morning, yeah. whenever you're listening to this. Or yeah. morning. Morning. Yeah. Or middle of the night, you have insomnia. Yeah. That's cool too. You want to learn about guinea worms in the middle of the night and awful and never sleep while you're again. Eating a bowl of spaghetti in your bed, yeah. Awful. <laughs>
Right. On that note, Thanks everybody have for a listening. great day. We'll see you Bye-bye. next week. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.